Hi, welcome to Master Your Mind with me, Marissa Peer, teaching you the secrets to harness the powerful potential of your mind so you can have a fulfilled and happy and extraordinary life. Send your questions or your problems that you'd love me to solve to podcast at marissapeer.com. Well, I'm a massive, massive fan of Johan Hari. I read his book, Lost Connections, and it spoke to me in the most profound way. And it's a New York bestseller. And Johan's TED Talk has been viewed 75 million times, and it deserves every single view. He also wrote, amazingly, a book called Chasing the Screen. You've written two books that really speak about what's going on in the world. And Lost Connections, I find so important because it talks about what really is going on. So welcome to Johan Hari. I think he's got so much to tell us about drugs, why people are getting more and more addicted, what's happening with social media and about our lost connections. So welcome, Johan. And I'd love to ask you, first of all, what led you to write this amazing masterpiece, Lost Connections? Oh, thanks, Marissa. That's such a lovely introduction. I wish that happened every time I spoke. Someone was so nice. The reason I wrote Lost Connections is because there were... It's funny, every book I've ever written, it's because there was a mystery that I wanted to solve for myself. It was a kind of, in some ways, a kind of self selfish journey. Um, and for me, the, there were two mysteries that drove me to write Lost Connections. And the first is when I wrote it, I, had just, I was just about to turn 40. And every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have increased. In Britain, in the US, across the Western world, gone up and up and up. And I wanted to understand, well, why right why is that happening why is it that with each year that passes more and more of us are finding it harder to get through the day and I wanted to understand that because of a more personal mystery which is that when I was a teenager I went to my doctor and I explained that I felt like pain was sort of leaking out of me I'm sure you've had plenty of people come to you sure. and and I didn't understand it I was quite ashamed of it and my doctor, who was a very well-meaning person, told me a story that I now realise was really oversimplified. My doctor said, well, we know why people get like this. Some people just have a chemical imbalance in their brains, just naturally. You're clearly one of them. All we need to do is give you some drugs, you're going to be fine. So I started taking a chemical antidepressant called Paxil. I did get a significant boost, but it wore off. Um, I kept jacking up the dose. Again, I felt better. Again, the effect wore off. And in the end, after 13 years of that, I was like, well what's going on here? Because I'm doing everything I'm being told to do according to the story that, that our culture is telling about depression and anxiety, but I still feel awful, right? What's going on? So I ended up going on this huge journey, as you know, over 30,000 miles, interviewing the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and, anxi and anxiety, and crucially, what solves them. And I learned that there's actually scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety. My doctor wasn't totally wrong. Two of them are in our biology, but most of the things that are causing depression and anxiety, and certainly the factors that are causing them to rise, are not in our biology. They're factors in the way we live. And once you understand that, it opens up a whole different set of solutions that we should be offering people alongside the option of chemical antidepressants. Yeah, and why do you think it's become right, you know, I've, I've spent some time in Africa, particularly Zimbabwe, and for all the poverty, you just don't see depression there. Why do you think depression and mental health, health issues are rife at the moment? 
what do you what do you think is causing this kind of glut if you like of depression anxiety addictions and other mental health issues too so there's nine causes for which there's scientific evidence and i think it's really interesting to think about um what the last year and a half can teach us right so we've all gone through this enormous global pandemic and depression and anxiety have significantly increased there's been a huge rise in diagnosed depression and anxiety and indeed addiction related deaths people drinking themselves to death people overdosing on things like heroin massive increase right Mm -hmm. and in a way that's not surprising to any of us It, it intuitively makes sense when we think about the trauma we've all gone through. But if you think about this story that we've been telling for so long, that it's just a problem internal to your brain, just a biological problem. Well, if that was the case, this wouldn't make any sense because it's not that our brains almost seriously began to go haywire a year and a half ago, right? What happened is the society changed, the way we live changed, and that caused an increase in depression and anxiety. That should tell us something about why depression and anxiety were rising before the pandemic, but let's look at an an obvious one of the nine causes, right? Loneliness. I spent a lot of time interviewing the leading expert in the world on loneliness, an amazing man named Professor John Cassiopo, who's at the University of Chicago. And and he he did loads of incredible, he sadly died recently, but he did loads of incredible work. Firstly, he proved that loneliness causes depression and anxiety. Mm. I know that might sound like a bit of a no shit Sherlock finding but actually until him people had said well maybe it's just that you become depressed first and that makes you lonely and that happens sometimes but he proved it goes the other way too right loneliness causes depression he also proved really importantly loneliness has massively increased and I remember one time thinking this through with him I remember him saying to me why do we exist right you me everyone you've ever met why are we here one key reason is that our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down a lot of the time. They weren't faster than the animals they took down a lot of the time, but they were much better at banding together into groups and cooperating. Just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe. And we are the first humans ever to disband our tribes. And it is making us feel absolutely terrible so that's one one example i can talk about lots of others if you like yeah i tell everyone all my clients because you know i've worked with thousands of addicts and i tell everyone look when you're born you have two drivers find connection avoid rejection a baby knows that if my mom connects to me i will survive and we understand that surviving used to be a numbers game and now, and, and of course, that wasn't that long ago that we died of rejection. When my father lived in Northumberland, they had a little church. I think it was an 11th century church. And it had a banishment window. And that meant that if you didn't conform, the village would cast you out. But you still had to go to church. And you had to turn up just uh-huh. after the service began. And you had to crouch down by this banishment window and join in. But you had to leave before the service ended because you were banished. And even in Romeo and Juliet, when they cast him out, he said, well, I'd rather die than be cast out. There's nothing outside the city walls but purgatory. And so we know just from literature that banishing, marooning a difficult sailor, putting someone in isolation, casting people out is the worst punishment in the world, isolating people, sending your kid to the room. We have, you know, the mean girls at school that isolate one person, and yet, 
it's so bizarre that we've actually live in a world where we isolate ourselves. We live in an apartment, maybe a coach online. Amazon delivers everything. We don't have to see anyone. And it, I find it so odd that we've almost chosen a life of enforced banishment. Also knowing that it is the most effective, I mean, punishment. We know that prisoners who go into solitary, the most disruptive, the most affected, they, they need more help than the rest of the prison population put together. So why do you think we live in a world now where we're kind of choosing this kind of banishment, this isolation? I think it's related. I think there's lots of reasons. I think it's related to one of the other causes of depression and anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections, which is that it's about a corruption of our values. So yeah. everyone knows that junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, right? I don't say that with any sense of superiority, as you can see from my chins, I'm very well acquainted with the KFC menu. But um, so just let me know that junk food appeals to the part of us that needs nutrition, but actually poisons us. Mm. Um, a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. For thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and showing off, you're gonna feel like shit, right? That's not an exact quote from Confucius or Schopenhauer, but that is basically what they said. But weirdly, nobody had ever scientifically investigated this until an incredible man who I interviewed a lot called Professor Tim Kasser, who's at Knox College in Illinois, just retired. And he spent 30 years investigating, well, is this true, right? Do How do your values affect all sorts of aspects of your life, including whether you become depressed and anxious. And Professor Kasser discovered loads of things, but for the purposes of our conversation, Marissa, I think he discovered two really important things. Firstly, he discovered the more you think life is about money and status and showing off the kind of values we get from advertising and Instagram and everything like them, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious by a significant amount. And secondly, he showed as a society, as a culture, we've become much more driven by what I would call these kind of junk values, right? So you think about, um, at some level, this might almost sound banal, right? Everyone watching knows none of you are gonna lie on your deathbed and think about all the shoes you bought and all the likes you got on Instagram, right? You're gonna think about moments of love and, and meaning and connection. But Professor Kasser showed from the moment we're born, we are pumped full of this, this alternative value system that carries us away from what we intuitively know that we need. More 18 month old children in the United States know what the McDonald's M means than know their own last name. So from the moment you're born, you're immersed in this machinery that says, if you don't feel good, there's a solution for that. Yeah. Buy things, show them off to make other people jealous. We're fed a kind of KFC for the soul. It teaches us, it teaches us to go against our own best instincts, which at some level we all know of course you find meaning in life through connection with other people with meaningful values with nature and um, it, it takes us away from that towards just this extreme individualism that get, teaches us actually you'll be happy when you are making a kind of isolated mm -hmm. achievement for yourself it's interesting you mentioned Zimbabwe because I was thinking as you said that about one of the really interesting other different piece of research that I looked at for the for the book. There's this woman called Dr. Brett Ford. She was at Berkeley when I interviewed her. She's in Toronto now. Um, and she was involved in this big piece of research that I think really helps you to explain what you're saying about Zimbabwe, but also this question about loneliness. So they did this research. They wanted to discover something. They wanted to investigate something basically quite simple. They wanted to figure out, let's say you, Marissa, decided you were going to spend two hours a day 
deliberately trying to make yourself happier, would you actually become happier? And they did this research as part of a huge international team. They did this research in four countries. They did it in the United States, in Japan, in Taiwan, and in Russia. And what they discovered at first seems really weird. In the United States, if you deliberately try to make yourself happier, you do not become happier. But in the other countries, Russia, Taiwan, Japan, if you try to make yourself happier, you do become happier. And at first they're like, well, what's going on? How could that be? So they studied it more. What they discovered was in the US, if you try to make yourself happier, in the main, you do something for yourself, right? You buy something, you try to get a promotion, you show off on social media, whatever it would be. So we have an instinctively individualistic idea of what it means to be happy. In the other countries, in the main, of course there are exceptions on both sides, but in the main, if you try to make yourself happier, you did something for someone else, your family, your friends, your community. So we have an instinctively individualistic idea of what it means to be happy. And they have an instinctively collectivist idea of what it means to be happy. And it turns out our story about happiness just, just doesn't work very well, right? The things we've been told make us happy don't make us happy. In fact, they take us away from happiness. So this is not the only thing that's going on with loneliness, but there's these deep underlying stories in our culture about what it means to be a human being, about what it means to be a successful human being, about what it means to be happy. These deep stories that we just think are part of the world, of how the world is, that actually drag us in the direction of loneliness, isolation. You know, if you think life isn't about relationships with other people mostly, but it's mostly about individual achievement and showing off, well, that's going to lead to a very different kind of life, one where you are much more likely to be anxious and depressed. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, and, and that's, of course, what happens on social media. I meet people who say, I've got 500 friends. I met someone recently I was working with who said, you know, I, I put a post and, he, and then he, all night he's looking for how many likes this post got. I'm like, hello, girlfriend is here. But mm -hmm. he's really connecting with a phone. He's connecting with people. And I see so many teenagers in their early 20s and their whole life is about my social media presence, how many likes have I got, how many followers. But they're not even real. If you say I'm having a really bad day and I've got the flu, no one's turning up with chicken soup because they're not there. And I think it's really a tragedy that we've allowed people to connect to a, a screen. I know in Japan, you can now rent a friend. They actually have robots to keep all oh the company. It's like, well, what kind of world? In Japan, they've got this thing where they've got a, women in their 50s actually preferring to go to jail not wanting to leave because jail is a bit like girls boarding school there you connect with people you have someone to talk to you wake up every day with someone to talk to or your laundry gets done and they say it's a real problem that they they actually prefer being in jail with other women to being in their solitary life in their apartment not seeing anyone so i do wonder what we're doing to the world i mean when i was in Dubai a couple of years ago I saw that all the baby strollers had iPads in them so the baby is facing away from the mum and they do, they're doing this I go to restaurants and when I took take my little girl to a restaurant she had crayons and a piece of paper now they have their phones and they're all playing and many clients say, you know my kids getting really angry because they want screen time you know it's so funny we used to you know, when I was growing up, we used to go out to play and our parents couldn't get us in. Now they can't get their kids out to play because they're on their screen. So 
do you think we're, we're looking in completely the wrong place for the solution to depression and addiction? Yes, and I think you've gone to a really important thing. I wanted to understand this more, this question about our obsession with screens. So one of the places I went to was the first ever internet rehab center in the world. It's um, wow. uh, just outside Spokane in Washington. It's called Restart Washington. They're super interesting people. You should talk, you should have a, as a guest, Hillary Cash, the doctor who runs super insightful okay. women, but remind me, I'll introduce you to her. Um, but I remember going there, it's called Restart Washington. I remember arriving, the car, <laughs> I remember the car pulling up and it's like a clearing in the woods, right? It's a lovely, gorgeous center. And I remember absolutely instinctively, I looked at my phone and felt irritated that I didn't have any cell phone reception to check my email. And I was like, oh wait, you're in the right place, right? Um, so, but it was really interesting because they get all sorts of people in this rehab center, but they disproportionately get young men who've become obsessed with online multiplayer role-playing games like World of Warcraft. It would be Fortnite now, but that didn't exist when I went. And, and it was fascinating talking to these young men who were very articulate about their problems and extremely likable. And but afterwards talking to Dr. Cash and her saying to me, you've got to ask yourself, and you know this very well from the, the world of addiction yourself, Marissa. She said, you've got to ask yourself, what are these young men getting out of these games? Because yeah. they're getting something out of it, right? And she said, actually, they're getting the things that young men used to get from the society, but they no longer get. So they get a sense that they are seen by other people. If you're playing an on, on, online role-playing game, at least other people see you, right? You get a feeling you're good at something. We have a school system that mostly makes boys feel incompetent and stupid. Um, mm -hmm. They get a feeling they're moving around. Like you said, they hardly ever leave their homes. The figures for this are extraordinary. Kids just don't go outside in the US and Britain anymore. Yeah. Um, exactly, but what they're getting is a kind of parody of those things, right? Or a kind of hologram of those things. I started to think as I spoke to them, because a lot of them had also become completely obsessed with porn. Um, in some ways, I think, the relationship between social media and social life is a bit like the relationship between porn and sex, right? I'm not mm. totally against porn, it'll meet a certain basic itch, but no one after looking at porn for an hour feels satisfied and held the way they do if you've had sex, right? If at least if it goes well, right? Um, the, 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 um, we didn't evolve to look at each other through screens. We didn't evolve to have sex through screens we evolved to look at each other in this three-dimensional way and we've all of course seen that you know we're talking through zoom we've all had infinite zooms during covid if screen-based interactions were satisfying as normal interactions we would have all been fine talking to each other through zoom in fact we all hated it as we all know um but i think that helps us that when i was at restart washington help me to think a bit more deeply about this because it's tempting to say oh the screens are what's making us depressed I think it's slightly more complicated so you've got to think about the moment when screens arrive so for most of us it's the late 1990s the early 2000s when a lot of the things we're talking about like loneliness and junk values had already been really progressing for a lot of years increasing for a lot of years and what happens is the internet arrives and it looks a lot like the things we've lost We've lost friends, but here's Facebook friends. You've lost status in the economy. Here are status updates, but it's not the thing we've lost. So it's a curious thing where actually what, what, what's happening with the internet is it's an attempt to fill the hole that's left by all these unmet needs, but it's not a successful attempt to fill that hole, right? In fact, 
often takes us further away from meaningful values from other people, not in every case, but in a lot of cases. So I think it's a complex relationship there, but I think you're totally right. And Professor Jill Twenge um, has done really good research on this showing, you know, the, 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 I mean, it's contested, but I think it's quite persuasive that uh, this is really increasing. It's an attempt to solve our depression and anxiety that actually in most cases increases our, our depression and anxiety. Yeah, because there's no touch. You know, I was talking to somebody recently, a, a man about his young daughter. He said, you know, I read her a story every night on Zoom. I'm in a different state to her, but, you know, and then I spoke to someone else who hasn't seen her daughter for a year and a half. And she said, no, it's amazing. We have FaceTime every Monday for 90 years. We're more connected ever than we were when I lived in the same state as her. And I'm like, but that, that can't be because where's the touch? You know, I love my daughter. I love my husband, but our whole relationship is about hugging, holding hands, giving someone a cuddle, rubbing the back, going, it's okay. But you can't do that on a screen. It's just so bizarre that I meet parents who say, well, I have screen time. I can understand the grandparents. I think that is a great thing. They're far away. You live in Australia and how cool that the grandparents can come and talk to you. But a lot of my friends, and then, you know, I parted from my husband and, and he's got screen time and I can't make my three-year-old be on the screen with her dad. She's bored out of her mind. She wants to run around. But I just find it bizarre that we think a screen relationship is as good as a real one. And when parents say to me, you know, I have quality time with my kid on the screen. I go, well, try going on a date that way. Try meeting someone saying, hey, we're just going to meet on the screen every day and, and have a date. And that's just as good, isn't it? And they'll go, no, of course it's not as good. How can we look into each other's eyes and hold hands and flirt on the screen? So I think we've sold people something really disingenuous, rather like we sold people antidepressants. In fact, many years ago, a client came to me and said, hey, you know, I couldn't have sex with my husband. I was so depressed that I couldn't have sex with him. So I went to the doctor and now I'm on Prozac and I still can't have sex. And you know what? I don't care anymore because I'm now numb. And I thought, well, that's just bizarre that you have the same problem you had. The difference is you no longer care that you're not connecting with your husband. And of course, great sex with someone you care about creates oxytocin. And instead she had Prozac. So do you think that we are no longer responsible enough for our outcomes I, I wonder in the world if we're, we're we're allowing Facebook and Netflix to entertain us we're allowing DoorDash and Uber Eats to send us food and then we go on a screen and hang out with a group do you think that we are forgetting that you know responsibility means an ability to respond to be responsible for our outcomes and our situations I think there's a lot in that question. I think you framed it the right way, which is you use the word we, not I or you, right? Because there's a moment, there's a moment in the research for the book where there were quite a few moments in the research where I just realized I had to reframe how I thought about something. But one of the biggest was when I went to interview this South African psychiatrist called Dr. Derek Summerfield. And Derek happened to be, it's very related to your Zimbabwe point as well. So Derek happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when they first introduced chemical antidepressants for Cambodians. They hadn't had them in Cambodia before. And he was researching something else. He was just there by coincidence. And the local doctors, the Cambodians, were like, oh, what are antidepressants? They'd never heard of them. So he explained. 
and they said to him, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And they, and he said, well, what do you mean? And, and they, they told him a story. They, he, cause he thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy, right? Like St. John's wort or Jinko Biloba. Yeah. No, they said, so they explained that there was a guy in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine left over from the war with the United States and he got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial limb. And after a few months, he, he just goes back to work. He goes back to work in this rice field. But apparently it's really painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial limb. And I'm guessing it's fairly traumatic to like, you know, go back to the field where you got blown up. The guy started to cry a lot. After he developed what we would call classic depression. After a while, he just refused to get out of bed. The Cambodian doctors said, well, that's when we gave him an antidepressant. And Dr. Summerfield said, well, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense. Actually, you only had to sit with him for five minutes to understand why he felt the way he did, right? One of the doctors figured, if we bought this guy a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was screwing him up so much. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. They said to Derek, so you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression and anxiety the way we have, that sounds like a joke, right? I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. She gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the leading medical body in the whole world, the World Health Organization, has been trying to tell us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not weak, you're not crazy, you're not in the main a machine with broken parts, you're a human being with unmet needs. And what you yeah. need is love and practical help to get those needs met. And the reason I was thinking about that in relation to your, to, to your, to, to your question, Marissa, is because what's so important to me, there's so many important things about that story and the science that reinforces it. But to me, one of the most important things is what they didn't say to that Cam Cambodian guy. They didn't figure out, oh, okay, you're being made depressed by your environment, by factors in your life. So it's your job to fix that now. It's on you, buddy. You got to sort this out, right? They didn't say, if they had said that, it would have been completely pointless. The guy couldn't solve it on his own. What they said is, you've got a problem in the environment that could have happened to me, could have happened to anyone. We will now intervene and together change your environment, right? And I think that's what's crucial because there's one way of talking about this that I think is not helpful or that's going too far. It's one way of talking about it, which I think has limited some value, but it's pretty limited which is to explain these things and then say to people, okay, so let's talk, think about loneliness. It's to explain to people, okay, loneliness is causing a huge amount of the depression and anxiety around us. So come on now, pull yourself together, get, obviously I'm not saying, you're not saying this, Marissa, the, the, you know, pull, yeah, pull yourself together and get, get out there and go meet people, right? That there are alternative approaches, which, which are based on we, not me, that are much more effective. So I'll give you an example, very practical one that every doctor's office in the world should be doing. So um, one of the heroes of Lost Connections is, is a doctor called Sam Everington, who's a general practitioner in East London, poor part of East London where I lived for years, although sadly Sam was never my doctor. And Sam was really uncomfortable uh, in a way that I think you are, Marissa, because he had loads of patients coming to him with terrible depression and anxiety. And like me, he's not blanketly opposed to chemical antidepressants. He thinks they have some role to play, but he could see two things. Firstly, most of the people he gave antidepressants to, chemical antidepressants, did become depressed again. And secondly, they were depressed and anxious for really understandable reasons, like they were lonely. 
So one day he decided to pioneer a different approach. A woman came to see him who I got to know later called Lisa Cunningham. And Lisa had been shut away in her home with just crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs, but I'm also gonna prescribe something else. He prescribed for her, he said, I want you to come twice a week to these offices to meet with a group of other depressed and anxious people, not to talk about how shit you feel. You can do that if you want, but actually the point of it is so you can find something meaningful that you guys can do together. And, and the first time the group met, Lisa literally started vomiting with anxiety. It was just so overwhelming for her. But the group starts talking, they're like, what could we do? These are inner city East London people. Like me, they didn't know anything about gardening, but they were like, there was this big area behind the doctor's offices. They were like, we could turn that into a garden. So they started to read gardening books. They started to watch YouTube gardening instructions. They started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant. Mm -hmm. But they started to do something even more important. They started to form a tribe. They started yeah. to form a group. When one of them didn't show up, the others would go looking for them, help them figure out what was going on, solve their problems. The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. This approach is called social prescribing. It costs absolutely nothing. Um, it's spreading all over Europe. And there was a small study in Norway of a similar program found it was more than twice as effective in reducing anxiety as chemical antidepressants. And this is something I saw all over the world from Sydney to San Francisco to Sao Paulo. The most effective strategies for dealing with depression and anxiety are the ones that deal with the underlying reasons why people feel this way. And that to me, again, social prescribing is so important because it's not about saying to the isolated individual, you've got to take responsibility for your own behavior, pull yourself together. Again, I, I'm not imputing this view to you. I know this is not what you think either. Um, pull yourself together, get out there, take responsibility. To me, that you, you could have said that to Lisa and it would have just made her more depressed. It's about giving people routes to reconnection, paths to reconnection that usually require some kind of collective action. Not always, sometimes an individual can do it on their own, but mostly you need that kind of collective action. Individuals can take personal responsibility with support. Without support, what can you do? You know, isolated, depressed people, interacting through screens, talking, taught that life is all about money and showing off, are gonna be depressed and anxious most of the time, right? That, yeah. That's not, yeah. Sorry, that was a long that's answer. Right. But that's a great, that's why, you know, I, I actually had the client who was so depressed because his daughter and grandchildren moved to Australia and he just shut the curtains, but eventually he was invited to join an allotment. He said that, that changed his life. Yeah. Just growing to the allotment with other people and growing stuff. And it's the same thing if you can volunteer. I remember talking to someone who said on Christmas Day, she took a sleeping pill on Christmas Eve and woke up three days later and said, well, that's good. It's all over now. But the following Christmas, she decided to volunteer with Sheldon. She said, you know, it was so much better because there I was, you know, helping other people. And you're right. When we're depressed, we go inwards. We'll say, well, let's go and see a funny film or go shopping or have a massage. But when you're depressed, because depression means, like if you press your skin, you have a depression, you go in. And getting people to get out, they don't want to go shopping, but, but getting them to interact is immensely useful. Which brings me to something that I just blew my mind when I read it, which was Rat Park. And 
I know you've talked a lot about Rat Park, and I just think Rat Park is is incredible. Could you talk to our audience about Rat Park? It's changed my life in so many ways. Um, Me too. So the reason I wrote my, my book about addiction, Chasing the Scream, is because um, we had and have a lot of addiction in my family. One of my um, one of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up uh, one of my relatives and not being able to, and I didn't I didn't understand why, but as I got older, I understood about addiction. And um, I mean, it's very painful because we still have addiction in my family. And I think like a lot of people in that position, I was really just a, a mixture of, I felt a lot of love and compassion for the people I knew who had addiction problems and I could see they needed help. I also had a lot of anger towards them uh, I was never in favor of the drug war or prohibition, but I did have a kind of angry drug war voice in my head that would look at me and go, why, why don't you just stop, right? And, and, and so for that book as well, I traveled all over the world. I went to places with really different approaches to addiction from Vietnam, where they make people go out on uh, basically forced labor camps for people with addiction problems, which are catastrophe, to the only country that's decriminalized all drugs, Portugal. I can talk about that if you want. Um, and and, and I, but there was a moment it really fell into place for me and I realized actually I had misunderstood what I thought I'd been seeing all my life, which is when I went to Vancouver and met a totally extraordinary person called Professor Bruce Alexander. You should talk to him as well. I'll give you an intro. And I sat with him on the downtown east side of Vancouver, which is an area with a lot of addiction where he's done a lot of work. And, and he, he explained this to me and then I did a lot of research into it. So if you'd asked me when I started doing the research for Chasing the Scream nine, nine years ago, I can't believe it's been that long now, um, what causes addiction? Let's say heroin addiction, because that was close to me, right? I would have looked at you like you're an idiot. And I would have said, well, Marissa, the clue's in the name, right? Obviously mm -hmm. heroin causes heroin addiction. We've been told this story for a hundred years. That's become totally part of our common sense. It was definitely part of mine. Um, so. We think, you know, if I kidnapped the next 20 people to walk past my house here in London and I injected them all with heroin every day for a month, like a villain in a horror film, at the end of that month, they'd all be heroin addicts for a simple reason. There are chemical hooks in heroin that as they were injected with it, their bodies would start to desperately physically crave. And so at the end of that month, they'd have this tremendous physical hunger for the drug. And that's what addiction is, right? It's a tremendous physical hunger for the chemical hooks in the drug. That's why in English we call it being hooked. Um, but it turns out there's some truth in that story, but it's actually a small part of a much bigger picture. And the first thing that alerted me to that is when doctors here in Britain started to explain to me, if, if I stepped out of this interview now and I got hit by a truck and I broke my hip, I'd be taken to hospital and I'd be given a lot of a drug called diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin, right? It's medically pure heroin. It's much better than the shit I could buy on the streets because it's, it's medically pure, right? And um, if anyone listening has a British grandmother, if any of you got a British grandmother who've, who, um, who's had a hip replacement operation, your grandmother has been given a lot of heroin, right? People in British hospitals are given heroin when they have hip replacements. If what we think about addiction is right, that it's caused primarily or entirely by exposure to the chemical hooks. What should be happening to all these people in British hospitals who are being given really powerful heroin? Some of them should be leaving 
and trying to score on the streets. They should be leaving as addicts, right? This has been studied very carefully. It never happens. And when I learned that, I remember thinking that just can't be right. How could you have a situation where you have someone in a hospital bed being given a lot of really powerful heroin, they don't become addicted, and then you've got someone in the alleyway outside actually taking a much more weak uh, form of the drug, and they do become addicted, how could that be? And then I went to see Bruce, Professor Alexander, and, and he explained to me this story that we have, that addiction is caused mainly or entirely by the chemical hooks, comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. You guys, everyone listening could try it at home if they're feeling a little bit sadistic. You take a rat, you put it in a cage, and you give it two water bottles. One is just water, the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself within a couple of weeks by overdosing. So there you go, right? That's our story. It tries the drug, needs more and more of it, kills itself. But in the 70s, Professor Alexander was working with a lot of people with addiction problems. And he looked at these experiments and he said, that doesn't seem quite right to me. So he decided to, to, to do a variant of this experiment. He built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats, right? They've got loads of friends, they've got loads of cheese, they've got loads of colored balls, they've got loads of friends, they can have loads of sex. Anything a rat wants in life is there in Rat Park. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. And of course they try both, they don't know what's in them. This is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They hardly ever use it. None of them use it compulsively. None of them overdose. So you go from almost 100% compulsive use and overdose when the rats don't have the things that make life worth living for them to no compulsive use and overdose when they do have the things that make life worth living. Now, rats aren't humans, we're more complex, and there's lots of human experiments that show the same principle and lots, lots of people listening will know this plays out in their own lives. <clears throat> but what I learned from this is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. Important though that is to many people, the opposite of addiction is connection. The, the core of addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be. And once you understand that, you can see why the main way our societies respond to addiction, which is shame, stigma and punishment, are Ooh. such disasters. They, they, it's like adding fuel to the fire. They make people more humiliated, more ashamed, more distressed. That feeds the addiction. And you know, you said something that really made me think, because I was teaching my RTT, it's my own my method of therapy, and I was teaching it at, I um, happened to be Imperial Medical School, and I had a lot of doctors in the audience, and I was just working with different people who had illnesses. And one of the doctors said, you know, it's so weird, every person's coming up with an autoimmune disease where the body's attacking itself. But the other thing that I noticed with each person that came up and had a session, they all, they all have unmet needs. And you know, when we're children, we have very simple needs. I'm a newborn baby. I, I need to connect to the, my caregiver so that I'll make it. I need to feel safe and significant and important. I need to feel loved. I mean, that their profound needs are very simple. And as that baby becomes older, they have this, I need you to love me. I need to feel significant. I need to feel I matter. I need to feel that you're proud of me and I need to be celebrated. And when those needs aren't met, I find people go through the world and they do one of two things. The first is to go, my needs can't be met. I just can't ever get my needs met because 
A child before five doesn't have logic, only emotion. My needs aren't being met. And then they do this thing called tagging, which is, well, it will never be met. I can't meet it now, so I never will. And it's always going to be this way. And when your needs aren't met, rather like in Rat Park, they met the needs of rats. When your needs aren't met, you either accept or you think, I've got to find someone to meet my needs. Where's someone out there that can make me feel significant, worthy, and that I matter? And sometimes we're lucky enough to find someone, but then we become needy because if that person leaves us, well, we're back to having these unmet needs. And I, I tell all my clients, look, you have to look at your needs and say, well, I, I can meet them. I mean, I don't want to have a relationship with myself ever, but if I need to feel significant and worthy, maybe I could tell myself the words I'm giving someone else the job of telling me. And, and I really hope in school soon that they'll start to do that, to, to understand that we have needs as a child. When they're not met, we become adults with these unmet needs. That, and so many, I've met so many addicts who's, who were told in therapy you're trying to kill yourself and they've all said the same thing but I wasn't I was trying to stay alive in the pain the addiction numbed me one of my clients was put on the street by his parents when he was 11 and they never let him come home ever and he went to live with some prostitutes and the pimp he said they were very kind to him but it was unimaginable for an 11 year old not to have a mother and father and he started to use drugs very early to numb the pain. Another of my clients said his father totally rejected him when he found out he was gay and he became an addict, but they weren't trying to die. They were trying to numb the pain. It's like that song, comfortably numb. And I, I do think that addiction centers focus so much on that. Oh, you, you want to kill yourself. And often it's like, no, I want to stay alive, but I don't know how to stay alive with this pain. You couldn't be more right. There's a line, you know, Marianne Faithful. For listeners who I know, you know her, uh, but I, the, the, her. I think she's amazing. She's probably best for people who don't know who she is. She was an amazing rock star. She still is, um, and she's probably best known for being Mick Jagger's girlfriend, which really annoys me because she's much better than Mick Jagger. Yeah, no disrespect to Mick Jagger. Great album she has. Oh, she's incredible. But she mm -hmm. has she in her memoir. She has this line I think about all the time. It's very challenging, but it really speaks to what you're. You're saying, Marissa, very challenging, especially for someone like me who's who's paid a price for the people they love having addiction problems. But she, so she was homeless in the late 60s. She says in her memoir something like, heroin saved my life because if it wasn't for heroin, I would have killed myself. And I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been, a future book that I'm writing is about, um, I'm not meant to talk about it too much, but one aspect of it is looking at homelessness in Las Vegas. And lots of the homeless people there said to me, you can't do homelessness sober. Um, it's too terrifying, it's too frightening, you can't stay awake enough to be vigilant to the danger. You just... And what, what Marianne Faithful is saying there and what the homeless people I love in Vegas are saying is not obviously heroin is a good solution to despair, right? It's not Marianne Faithful saying at all, or that meth is a good solution to the challenges of homelessness. Of course it isn't. But what they're saying is in that situation, in that moment, that was the best solution they were offered. And I think you're absolutely right to pathologize that as, oh, and this comes to even just the use, think about there's been a shift, which I really disagree with, although many of the people putting it forward are well-intentioned, 
to go from using the word addiction to using the word substance use disorder, right? That's the, the new kind of jargon around it. And even think about things like anxiety disorder, depressive disorder. And you want to explain to people, no, these aren't disorders, right? They're not disorders. They can cause problems, of course, right? Of course, addiction can kill you, right? But they are not disorders. In the context in which they occur, they are attempts they're either responses, they're either signals, depression is a signal, anxiety is a signal, it's telling you something about your needs not being met. If you pathologize that, as my well-meaning doctor taught me to do, you it will cut you off from understanding the causes of your depression and anxiety and dealing with them, both individually and as a society. But, but if you think about something like addiction, you're totally right. These, the, I have to say, I think the level of... Um, the addiction industry in the US, and it is an industry, addiction treatment industry, has some wonderful people I love in it. But generally, the level of scientific knowledge, the level of um, the level of communication is abysmal and disgraceful. And the number of people I know who've been through this system, and obviously I get contacted by lots of people because of my, my books and my TED Talks. Um, I mean, the things people are told, I mean, I had an experience, I, I find it quite haunting actually, I was on a panel, it was in, in London. I was on a panel, I won't name the person because I don't want to personally attack her. But I was on a panel and it was me, a wonderful guy called Danny Kushlik, who's a kind of, has uh, has a, lo a long time arguer, for the, uh, a proponent of reforming the drug laws to make them more compassionate. Ian Duncan Smith is a very right wing politician mm -hmm. who was trying to shut down uh, all harm reduction services in Britain at the time, he didn't succeed and a woman who runs a very expensive rehab center here in, in, in Britain. And so I was saying similar things to what I'm saying to you, when we talked about, I'm sure I mentioned Rat Park. And she, and I kind of thought ahead of the panel, I was like, oh, it's gonna be, this is a bit unfair to Ian Duncan Smith, right? It's gonna be three on one, you know, three people arguing for compassionate policies and him arguing for what he argues for. But actually she's sort of scowling at me. And then when she spoke, she said, I'll never forget it. She said, what you're saying is, she had had an addiction problem 30 years before. She said, what, what you're saying is completely wrong. When I was a heroin addict, I was evil. And I sort of reeled back because my first thought was, God, all these vulnerable people who go to this rehab center who need help and they're being greeted by someone who's clearly got a lot of trauma of her own, who thinks at some level that they're evil. What? what kind of treatment are they getting, right? Um, and of course I said to her, I'm really sorry you were made to feel that way. You were not evil, right? I, mean, I don't believe anyone is evil, but you were not evil. You, you may have been you know, traumatized and disturbed. You may have done things that were wrong where you should have been stopped, but you were not evil. Um, and I just think there's so much in what you're getting at. One of the things you're getting at, I think really well, is there's so much internalized stigma in drug treatment. Oh. You know people who've been through a lot, of, and it's a good thing that there's people in addiction treatment who've had addiction problems themselves, that can that can have positive effects. But it also means there's a lot of people bringing unresolved trauma and a huge amount of internalized stigma. Even think about things like the idea that people have to do a, a moral inventory, right? I mean, every single human being could do with doing a moral inventory, right? I'm not against it, I'm in favor of it. But the idea that people with addiction problems uniquely need to do that, um, that to me is a very worrying message to give to give people, right? Because um, again, it's implying that their addiction 
comes not, as you're saying, from a place of pain and distress and unmet needs. It's implying it comes from a moral failing, right? And that is not true. That no, not- I've, I've found that many addicts are actually incredibly fragile, beautiful souls. But it's why, you know, we look at why so many people say to me, you know, you have all these famous clients. I guess fame must damage people. But I find it's the opposite. Damaged people are very drawn to fame because they think, well, I'll get connected if I'm famous. I'll feel worthy and significant if I'm famous. And of course, there are some people who are really receptive to suggestions Like you could say to Amy Winehouse, Amy, can you write a song about pain? She could knock her back to black in five minutes because she, she had a sort of creative soul. But when you're creative, you're also incredibly suggestible. It's why someone like Anthony Hopkins can, can see what a psychopath looks at this one and play it it was such a way that he terrified the whole crew. But it's that very same ability to be so receptive. So people think suggestible means gullible. It doesn't. It means if you're creative, you cannot be creative without being suggestible. A creative person can write great books, write great poetry. They can do great art. But their own suggestibility means that if someone says, oh, it's not really good enough or you could have done better, they take that in. And I find many addicts are these creative gentle, fragile, but incredibly talented souls who just, a bit like Jimi Hendrix, I suppose, who just turn to drugs because they they just don't feel good enough. And in fact, I've worked with hundreds of thousands of addicts. I've never met one in my entire life who ever thought they were enough. It's why I founded the I'm Enough movement because you know, people think they're not enough. I mean, we look at someone like David Bowie, um, Tom Petty, I love, but who who spent lost years in, in addiction. And you could say they were evil. They were beautiful souls. I mean, I, the prettiest star, I love David Bowie's lyrics. I love Amy Winehouse's lyrics, but they never think they're enough. And that's why I really push the I'm enough movement because when you know you're enough, you don't need more. When you think you're not enough, you always need more. Now that might not be more heroin, that might be more cake, more shopping, more praise, more, more feedback. But this whole, I need more of something because I'm not enough, is only really resolved when you decide to think, well, I am enough and I always have been, always will be. And I find its strength is in its simplicity, but also in its honesty and it really hurts me that so many addicts wander through life feeling not enough and I live in LA where there's a huge homeless population people don't look at them they don't look them in the eye they go look at them they're all users they're all addicts but when you live in a tent all day I mean what do you do when you wake up you don't come make some tea make phone calls put on the morning news and I guess I can understand that all you would do is drink and use to numb the pain of and then even if you don't start there feeling not enough, within a few weeks, you certainly will feel not enough because society shuns addicts and thinks they're weak and feeble and also incredibly selfish. One of the ways we know what you're saying is right, Marissa, is because of what happened in Portugal. So in the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in the world. Um, 1% of the population was addicted to heroin, which is staggering when you think about it, mm. right? Um, and every year they tried the American way more. They arrested more people, shamed more people, imprisoned more people. And every year the problem got worse until one day the prime minister and the leader of the opposition got together 
And they said, look, we can't go on like this. What are we going to do? So they decided to set up a panel of scientists and doctors led by an amazing man I got to know called Dr. Joao Goulao. And they said to them, you guys go away, figure out, look at all the science, figure out what would genuinely solve this problem. And all the political parties have agreed in advance, we'll do whatever you recommend. So it was just to take it out of politics because the crisis was so bad. So Joao and the other people, they go away, they look at all the science, including Rat Park, and they come back and they say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to decriminalize all drugs from cannabis to crack, the whole lot. But, and this is the crucial next step, we're going to take all the money we currently spend on screwing people up, chasing them, arresting them, trying them, imprisoning them. We're going to spend all that money instead on proactively turning their lives around. And interestingly, it wasn't really what we think of as drug treatment in Britain and the US. So they had some residential rehab, which has some value. But the biggest thing they did was a huge program of reconnection. So housing support, right? Massive increase in people who've been homeless being housed. Turns out when you've got a home, you're much more likely to be able to give up uh, your addiction. As we all know, none of us are going to, you know, think about when you gave up smoking or when I get, you know, you're not going to give up smoking the week that you're living under a bridge, right? Um, but the other thing they did was a huge program of job creation. Say you used to be a mechanic. They go to a garage. They say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. The goal was to say to everyone with an addiction problem in Portugal, we love you. We value you. We're on your side. We want you back. And by the time I went there, it was 11 years since the decriminalization. It's now uh, 17 years. And the results were in. Best study by the British Journal of Criminology found there had been a massive fall in addiction, a massive fall in overdose, more than 80% fall in overdose deaths. Portugal went from being almost the top of the league table in, in the European Union uh, for drug problems to the second bottom, right? huge transformation. One of the ways you know it works so well is that almost nobody in Portugal wants to go back. I went in and interviewed a guy called Joao Figueroa, who was the top drug cop in Portugal at the time of the decriminalization. And he said what lots of people totally understandably say when you suggest decriminalizing all drugs, he said, this is madness. We'll have an explosion in drug use. We'll have an explosion in children using drugs. We can't do this. And when I went to go and see him, he said to me, everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. And he talked about how he felt really ashamed that he'd spent so many years prior to the decriminalization, you know, harassing, shaming and arresting people when he could have been helping them turn their lives around. So you're, you're totally right, Marissa. We know everywhere in the world where they base their drug policies on shame and stigma and punishment, the drug problem gets worse. And everywhere where they move to policies, based on compassion, love, and practical help to get people's needs met, their drug problems reduce. It's not a magic bullet. They still have some problems in Portugal, Switzerland, Uruguay, other places I went where they've done this. But it's such a big shift that people see the results. You know, In Switzerland, after they legalized heroin, um, and Switzerland's a very conservative country. My dad's from there. You know, My Swiss relatives make uh, Donald Trump look like AOC. But you know, after they did this, they had a referendum and 70% of Swiss people voted to keep heroin legal. Not because they're so compassionate, they're not. It's just that crime fell so much, right? And it saves so much tax money. It's much cheaper to help people than shame, punish and imprison them as well as being much better drug policy. So I think at some point we have to realize that approaches based on love and compassion work 
and approaches based on shame and stigma really don't work. And we have to start copying the places that have succeeded, like Portugal, not the places that have disastrously failed, like the Philippines. Or the US or the UK. But yes. why have other countries not doing this? We, we know it works. What is it that stops other countries saying we've got a huge drug problem, the incarceration alone is just such a waste of money. Why aren't other countries rushing to do what Portugal did so well 17 years ago? So I think there's a few interesting reasons. And I think drug policy is slightly unusual. So you think about a lot of things that sort of people argue about politically. A lot of the time it's because people actually just have different goals. So mm -hmm. some people, let's think about people who believe in higher taxes versus lower taxes, right? Some people believe you should lower taxes because that sets business free to innovate and so on. And some people believe in higher taxes because then you can share the wealth more equally throughout society. It, that's a difference of values, right? Some people think set individuals free from taxation, they'll, you know, and other people believe, no, we should have more collective provision. They just don't agree, right? And that's a legitimate debate. And, you know, there's clearly some truth on both sides, although uh, more towards the higher taxation. Myself, there's clearly some truth on both sides. Lots of debates are like that, right? Some people are in favor of abortion, some people want to criminalize it. There's just a difference of values, right? But interestingly, with drug policy, in a funny way, we actually agree on what we want drug policy to do. So pretty much everyone, if you say to them, you could get the most hardcore legalizer and the most tough drug warrior, and you say, what do we, what outcomes do we want? Almost everyone would say, we want to protect children from drugs. We don't want people to become addicted. So in a funny way, we actually have a higher level of agreement about what we want to achieve than with lots of other policies. So that then, you then have to have the question, okay, but how do we achieve those goals that we agree on? And, you know, I would say we want to protect children. You really want to get drugs out of the hands of criminal drug dealers who don't care how old your children are. As Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister said, drug dealers don't check ID. And you want to get them into the hands of licensed legal businesses who will pay a price for selling to children. Um, and on addiction, we've been talking about that, obviously, the evidence is very clear that when you move to compassionate policies, you have lower addiction. So I think the main reason why the drug war continues, so a lot of people will give the argument, there's these vested interests that benefit from the drug war continuing. And that there's definitely some truth in that, you know, prison, prison guard unions, alcohol companies who don't want competitors, legal competitors, and so on. But I think, to be honest, that's quite overstated when people give that as the reason. The main reason is much more simple. If you're a politician, you're constantly making a calculation. If I do this thing, how much praise will I get and how much shit will I get, right? And at the moment, um, if you're a politician and you wanna do the right thing on drug policy, you wanna move away from punishment towards love and compassion and, and decriminalization or legalization, you will get some praise but you'll get a lot of shit. At the moment, the balance is shifting a bit now, but the, you'll still get more shit. And the reason is ordinary voters don't think the drug war has worked. Very high, if you look at the polling, more than 90% of people think drug war has failed, but they're afraid of the alternatives. They think the alter they have a kind of caricature of the alternatives. So they think when you say we should legalize, Switzerland legalized heroin, they think saying, oh my God, do you think there should be like a heroin aisle in CVS, right? Of course, no one thinks that. Um, but I mean, maybe there's some super hardcore libertarian who does, but there virtually nobody in the drug reform world wants that, right? Um, uh, so what you have to do, I think the main thing we have to do 
is educate people about what the alternatives actually mean in practice. And the way you do that is by explaining the places that have done it. Unfortunately, we've got an example now in the United States. Oregon just voted shortly before I was talking to do what Portugal did. It's not exactly the same, but it's decriminalize and use some of the money to help people instead of punishing them. And, and you know, one of the reasons I'm optimistic about this is because I'm gay and I've seen a transformation I could not have imagined, right? So when I was, um, let's say when I was 17, um, if you were a politician on gay rights, if you wanted to do the right thing, you wanted to treat gay people equally and with dignity and respect, you'd get a small amount of praise and an enormous amount of shit, right? Yeah. And what happened in an extraordinarily short amount of time, um, you think about it, we had 2000 years of gay people being persecuted, yeah. in an incredibly short amount of time, because there was a movement of ordinary people appealing, not just gay people, gay people and straight people, appealing to other people in the spirit of love and compassion, we had this huge transformation. I think a lot, because sometimes on the drug war and the brutal way we treat people with addiction problems, it's easy to be pessimistic because you just think, God, this is such a big fight. In 1994, Andrew was diagnosed as HIV positive. And at that time it was believed to be a death sentence. They didn't know that protease inhibitors were just on the horizon. Andrew's best friend, Patrick, had just died of AIDS. And Andrew was devastated and he thought, okay, I've got a few years left. I'm gonna write a book about a crazy utopian idea. So he, he quit his job and he went to a little gay town in Cape Cod called Provincetown. And he wrote this book called Virtually Normal. And it was the first book ever to advocate for a really radical idea, a wild idea, the idea was gay marriage. And Andrew wrote it thinking, well, obviously I'm never gonna to live to see this. Nobody alive today is gonna to live to see this, but maybe somewhere down the line, somebody will pick up this book and this idea will go somewhere. And when I kept depressed, I tried to imagine going back in time and saying to Andrew, okay, Andrew, you're not gonna believe me, but 26 years from now, um, you'll be alive that would have blown his mind. Yeah. You'll be married to a man. Um, and I'll be with you when the Supreme Court of the United States quotes this book that you're writing now, when it makes it mandatory for every state in the United States to introduce gay marriage. And the next day, you're going to be invited to a White House that's lit up in the colours of the rainbow flag to celebrate, to have a dinner there, to celebrate what you and so many other people have achieved. You'll have dinner with the president. And by the way, that president, he's going to be black, right? Every aspect of that would have sounded like me going to Samarissa. We're going to be invited by a trans, 26 years from now, a transgender president is going to invite us to the Oval Office to smoke crack with her, right? It would have seemed ludicrous, right? Not that we want that. I mean, the trans president, yes, the crack, no. Um, it happened, right? Extraordinary things happen when enough people fight for them and appeal to each other in a spirit of love. But you mentioned earlier the nine different things, and I know you said two, um, we can classes chemical do you have time to tell our audience what the other seven are can you condense them down um obviously i go through them in much more detail in the book but yeah. let's okay so uh <laughs> testing my memory here because it's four years since i wrote the book okay so we've got um so two of them are biological there's uh your genes can make you more sensitive to these mm -hmm. problems though they don't write your destiny and there are real brain changes that happen then there's disconnection from other people 
mm-hmm. uh, which we've talked about. There's disconnection from meaningful values, which we've talked about. Mm-hmm. There's disconnection from meaningful work. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about that more if you want. There's disconnection from um, status, a sense of status and respect. There's disconnection from a meaningful future. Mm-hmm. I think is that seven. I've, uh, <laughs> that math was never my strongest do. I think that's seven. I think that's seven. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. funny because I I've always looked at four things, and actually they're the same. I found that people who are depressed have three real things wrong. The the number one is harsh, hurtful, critical words that they say to themselves on a regular basis. They're very down on themselves, and I guess you would class that as disconnection from the self. The second one I find is that they they fail to follow their hearts as are they want to be a music teacher, but they go into the family law firm, want to be a golfer, but they feel they've got to be an accountant. And I I find that failing to follow your heart's desire causes massive depression. And the third one is is this huge disconnection. I I don't have friends. I don't have a family. Maybe I'm the boss of a business, but I never go to the pub on a Friday evening with the staff because I can't, because I'm the boss. But I find something else with people who have depression is a very interesting, first of all, they believe there's no cure. There's no cure for depression. It's this chemical thing, you know. And even if there was a cure, I don't deserve to be cured. And I found that so heartbreaking. I've sat with people every week for, gosh, coming up to 34 years now who say, but it's genetic, there is no cure. But even if there was a cure, I'm not worthy of the cure. And I guess you're right, each of those four things, not following your heart's desire, harsh, hurtful words, being disconnected and believing you don't deserve to get better are all actually huge disconnection. And I love what Portugal did because it said, let's connect people. So that's what you're saying. And it's such a beautiful message and it's so eloquent. And I really could talk to you all day, but I have to ask you one more thing. And I just remembered (laughs) that one thing I left off the list, which is disconnection from childhood trauma. And childhood trauma, that was the one. I knew there was one I was forgetting. I love that book, um, The Body Keeps Score by Essel van der I think that's an amazing book about trauma too. So I have to ask you one more question. I'm taking up so much of your time, but I must ask you, what are your three top tips for mastering your mind? So if you had three top tips that you would say you would use to master your own mind, to master yourself, and you could share them with us, you can have more than three, by the way, what would they be? So I would start by saying depression and anxiety are signals, not malfunctions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. I love that. You know, that if you're taught to think that when you experience deep distress, that's a malfunction in your biology, it will cut you off from, and there are, there are real biological contributions to it. It's important to stress that. But if the biology is just everything, if it dominates the whole way you think about this, it will cut you off from understanding the sources of your pain. And if you don't understand the sources of your pain, you can never deal with it, right? So I would start by saying that. Um let's see, three, I would say the more, the more you think about yourself as an isolated individual and the less you think of yourself as part of a group, the more depressed and anxious you'll be. So in a funny way, the way you master yourself is by seeing that you aren't that important, that you're part of something bigger than yourself. Um, So I think that would be crucially important. And the third, I guess, would be 
you know, um, you need to have a sense of home that consists of other people. The, the, the Bosnian writer Alexander Heyman said, home is where people notice when you're not there. Yeah. And by that standard, a lot of people in our culture are homeless, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, we've all been thinking about this in, in the last year and a half as we've had to physically separate to suppress the spread of the virus. So I guess those are the three that most come, come to mind. I mean, I guess the other one I would say is anything that reduces depression should be regarded as an antidepressant. Now, for some people, for some time, that will, that will be chemical antidepressants. But we need to radically expand, expand our idea of what causes, uh, of what an antidepressant is, right? So shame, childhood trauma causes shame. When you release that shame, it reduces depression and anxiety. That's an antidepressant. Social prescribing, being part of a gardening program, that's an antidepressant. Being exposed to the natural world, that's a really powerful antidepressant. Um, giving people a guaranteed basic income when they tried that in Canada in the 70s led to a massive fall in depression and anxiety. That's an antidepressant. So I think we need to expand our idea. We need to have a much deeper idea. We need to understand the science that is out there. Uh, this is not some fringe position, right? This is the World Health Organization, the leading medical body in the world, says a lot of these things. Uh, we need to have a much deeper understanding of what causes depression and anxiety. We need to stop pathologizing depression and anxiety and start listening to them. Because it's not just that it's a signal, it's a signal we need to hear. Depression and anxiety are telling us something profoundly important. If we could get rid of them just through zapping them and drugging them, we mm. shouldn't. Because then what would, what would a society that could get rid of people's distress signals be like? What would a society that, 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 that um, you know, that, that um, you know, think about um, leprosy, right? With, with leprosy, um, my understanding of it is, uh, the, the writer Stephen Gross writes about this in his book, The Examined Life. With leprosy, so people who have leprosy lose the ability to feel things, right? Uh, in mm -hmm. their fingers or their toes or whatever. Um, and actually, it's a myth that like that makes your fingers or toes fall off. What happens is people with leprosy can't tell when they're being damaged, when they're being injured, because the signal has gone away. So if they put that, if you or I put our hand on a burning stove, we would immediately take our hand off and it would hurt. But we, we you know, but someone as leprosy advanced would put their hand on a burning stove and wouldn't know they put it on a burning stove. And so they would, you know, their hand would become so badly burned that it uh, much more badly burned. Um, removing signals from people of distress is not a kind thing to do to them because ultimately you get to a decent life by listening to those signals mm -hmm. i think about a trivial example is in the u.s you and i both live half the year in the u.s and um, in the u.s there's a thing that i've never seen in britain or germany or france it's really common indigestion pills right yeah uh, like people have them pretty often you can get them in the pharmacy and when I first would take them, you like want to go now too. exactly, they're delicious, right? Yeah, and when people take you, you want to go, but wait, indigestion isn't a malfunction, yeah. indigestion is your body saying you're eating too much too quickly, you yeah, need to listen to the signal of indigestion, yeah. right? That's that's a really important signal that you need to hear in mm. a much bigger now. Obviously, indigestion is uncomfortable, but it's not the worst thing in the world. I think that principle applies for depression and anxiety. Excruciatingly painful though they are, and I've been there and I know how painful it is. 
we need to listen to the signal and follow the signal because it will teach us what the underlying cause is. And once we understand the underlying cause, both as individuals and as a society, then we can start to deal with them. We need to profoundly change how we've been thought about depression and anxiety because it's been done with kindness, but it's actually cut us off from, we need to return to much more what you're saying, the psychological and social approaches to depression and anxiety, rather than this purely biological approach. Now there's some place that there is a real, there are real biological contributions. There's some place for chemical antidepressants for some people to be sure, but that's one part of a much bigger picture. And we need to restore the bigger picture and respect the signal. Yeah, I tell all my clients when they come in and they don't want to feel, look, you have to feel the feeling until it no longer requires to be felt. And my favourite expression, probably in the whole world, my favourite saying is um, Henry Maudsley, who said, the feeling that cannot find its expression in tears will cause other organs to weep. And that was Oh, so I love amazing. that. I've never heard that before. I said, yeah, the feeling that cannot find its expression in tears will cause other organs to weep. He founded the Maudsley Hospital oh. in London. And he understood oh. that when you don't verbalise your feelings, your body does it for you. And I would say, I call it triple A. You've got to be aware of what you're feeling, which most people think, oh, I don't know what I'm feeling. I just drink the feeling. And then you have to totally accept that I'm feeling immense rage towards my sister-in-law. I'm completely jealous of my own sister. You have to be aware of it totally. And then you have to articulate it and say out loud, oh, right, today I could quite cheerfully smack my husband around the head um, doesn't mean I'm going to but when you when you are aware of it accept it and articulate it it goes away because feelings are like little naughty children going hey notice me I'm here notice me when you Netflix your feelings or drink your feelings or Krispy Kreme donut your feelings they don't go away they just regroup and come back stronger when you say you know I could eat my feelings there's a huge pack of taco chips there I could eat the anger I feel towards my partner, but instead I could be aware of it, accept it and say it. Even if it's just to myself, I have to go into the bathroom and shut the door and run the taps and go right now. So angry with my partner because then it goes away and doing AAA, aware, accept, articulate is the most effective way of dealing with your feelings, but you can't Netflix them, you can't drink them, eat them, medicate them, shop them, you can't do anything except feel them until they no longer require to be felt. And then you understand what Dr. Maudley was saying. If you don't feel them, the body's going to do it for you. And that's so painful. All the experts that I interviewed who we've been talking about, um, people can hear uh, audio of those interviews on the book's websites. So if you go to www.joh a-N-N-H-A-R-I.com. You can uh, listen to interviews with Professor Tim Casso, who did the breakthroughs about junk values. You can listen to Dr. Vincent Felitti, who made lots of breakthroughs about childhood trauma. Um, the loneliness expert I mentioned, Professor John Casso, which is a huge, Bruce Alexander did the Rat Park experiment. A huge range of people. You can also find out where to get the book and the audio book. And if you have any family um, members with addiction, please read Lost Connection. It, it should be a Bible within AA and everywhere because it's so good. And watch your what's your TED Talk called? I mean, I've watched it so many times. Oh, um, one of them is called 
everything you think you know about addiction is wrong and the other one is called this could be why you're depressed and uh, depressed or anxious okay well i'm a massive fan i mean i've been in oh. this helping people for 34 years and i, I found your work is so you're, you're probably one of my very favorites because your work is oh. it makes sense it's easy it talks to people but it also gives them a solution. So if you've got anything going on in your life about addiction, read Johan's books, watch his TED Talk, because I'm telling you, it's amazing. Thank you for listening to Master Your Mind with Marissa. I'm Marissa Peer, founder and creator of Rapid Transformational Therapy, known as RTT. RTT is my life's work and passion combined into a unique, and proven program for therapists to create powerful change with their clients. I feel blessed every day to see the transformations it brings and the ripple effect it's creating in the therapy world. To find out more, visit rtt.com.